this is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, if we can connect you with a local church or a discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. Again, we're going to be in Acts chapter 14. You can turn there in your Bibles. And as you do, I want to read uh, a passage over you. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to be in Romans 9. And in Romans 9, there's this theological truth that Paul gives us uh, that really connects together this idea of salvation with why some aren't saved. Like there's this... Paul wants all to be saved, to all come to Christ. Like he, he desires this truth that if the salvation is for all, then why would all not come for salvation? And he has this passion, this groaning within him. I, I just want to read it over you, and I want you to hear his theology driving his ministry. I want you to hear it coming through his heart. This is in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. It says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ." who is God over all praised forever. Amen. Paul has this desire, this longing. In fact, it says unceasing anguish, this continual pain within his heart that his people, his brothers and sisters, those whom he, he knows, those whom he studied with, those who he ran with in Jerusalem and learned with in Jerusalem and were being and studied with in Jerusalem and worshiped in Jerusalem, in the synagogues and in the temples in Jerusalem, those whom he knew as brothers and sisters were not coming to faith in Jesus Christ, and he longed for them to. What would you do? How far would you go for the lost to be found and the found to be discipled? How far would you go for the lost to be found and the found to be discipled? How much anguish is in your heart? How much desire is within you that the lost would be found? How much is in you? How much passion do you have that those whom are lost would be found? What would you do for those whom are lost to be found? Paul has an unceasing anguish. He says these words. He says that he would be cut off or accursed from the people of God if only they would come into the kingdom of God. Like Paul would rather be separated for, from God forever if all of his people would come in than to be in the kingdom of God. He so longed for his people to follow after his God. What would you do for the lost to be found and the found to be discipled? You know, I, in my life, I, I don't know about you, but I've had conversations in my life where you get somewhat through the conversation, all of a sudden you go, what, what were we even fighting about? You all ever done that before? You're like halfway through and you're like, is this really like that big of a deal? Sometimes, I mean, you, sometimes you'll literally get through the conversation, maybe this is with a friend or a coworker or a spouse or maybe even a church member, and you're like, does anybody even remember what started this? Y'all with me? 
Anybody ever been there? Y'all are being silent because your spouses are sitting beside you. That's what's happening. I get it. I get it. I'm a long enough distance away. I'm okay right now. But you've been through these discussions, and you're like, man, is this really even that big of a deal? And, you know, in, in the church world, in, in, our, in our theology, in our ministry, and what we do here, you have to ask the question, is this really that big of a deal? I think what helps us is if we think about it like this, there are unessential, unessential things that cause dissension and ultimately lead to pain in your life and in the life of the church. In relationships, in your marriage, with coworkers, with friends, and within the church, there's unessential, unessential things that cause dissension and ultimately lead to pain in your life. And you're like, man, how did we even get here? Like, what even happened? Like, what, what drove me to this point? I don't even understand how we got to this place, but we're here. And these things mounted up, and they don't even seem like they were significant, but yet there's this such division. And I don't even understand why we're here, but we're here. I would challenge you to think not as unessential dissension, but missional motives. What are those missional motives in your heart? Like Paul, this unceasing anguish, this desire to bring his brothers and sisters to Christ and to be in the kingdom of God with him as brothers and sisters, yet again fulfilling the gospel promise that the Jews would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Is there a desire in your heart that your friends, coworkers, spouse, this church be unified around this central theme of Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you have an unceasing anguish in your heart? Or do sometimes we let trivial things, petty problems, unessential nuances and struggles and frustrations, little things cause division. I think I, I hope to be able to help you think through these things because chapter 13, 14, and 15 are really the climax and acts of this question, what will divide us? What should separate us out? Is it because of our Jewishness? Is it because of our nationality? Is it because of our of something else that we like or prefer? Is it something that's going to distinguish us out and separate us? Or is it because we're going to be united upon Jesus Christ? So let me walk through this with you. Look at, think about it like this, missional motives. Let me ask you some questions. Does the desire in your heart lead to the lost being found and the, and the found being discipled? Does the desire in your heart lead the lost to be evangelized and found and the found to be discipled? If it does not, it might not be a desire that is missional and mission critical. It might be something that is not essential in your life. In fact, think about it like this too. If there's a desire in your heart that does not bring glory to God or goodness to us from God, then it's probably a desire that can, we can set aside, let it go, let it die, crucify it to the flesh as Christ and Paul would call us to do, put it away and not bring it back because that is a desire that is not driving us to the mission that God has given us. Are there things in your life, preferences, desires, frustrations, different things in your life that aren't bringing glory to God and aren't bringing good to us or good to those around us that you're holding on, clinging on to, that is causing division in your friendships with your coworkers, with your church, with your spouse? Are there things in your life that are unessential, that are dividing? 
I want to help you through this time together discern those things, and I want to see what God, God's Word has to tell us about these things. But first, let's ask some questions about unessential dissension. I, th- I think that we can help ourselves by asking, is this frustration something that is transforming me, transforming others, or is this frustration something that is dividing us? You see, as leaders, because all of you in some capacity, if you believe in Christ, ought to be leading, making disciples, leading a group, some form of ministry. You ought to be leading in some capacity your coworkers, your spouse, your family, your friends. You are called into a position of leadership as soon as you believe in Jesus Christ. We are making disciples, evangelizing lost and discipling the found. There's no option. That's what Jesus commanded us to. It's not a request. It's not an ask. It's a command. Therefore, Jesus commanded with all authority from heaven and earth, commanded. Therefore, you are leading, right? We are leading others who have been found to follow Jesus Christ with all that they are, making other disciples. And in that moment, we can ask this, is this frustration, is this desire transforming me and transforming others? Or is it something that is ineffective, non-transforming, and has no purpose. Because look, there are frustrations that are good. There's frustrations that are healthy for us to work through as leaders. We need to know them. We need to grow from them. We need to become better because of them. We need to not be okay that there are people that are separated from God for eternity. That needs to be a little bit, that needs to move us. It's like an unceasing anguish. If Paul has this unceasing anguish, there are things that we learn, frustrations that we have that should drive us to be better leaders, better disciples, make more disciples, engage the world differently, love the world differently. There's things that should move us forward. But there's also things that have no purpose transforming us. Like they do not, des- they do not deserve to get into your marriage and transform your marriage. There are things that we put above God, that we put uh, beside God, that we put in the place of God. There are things that we let into our relationships and into our church that have no right to be transforming us, right? These are unessential dissensions. These are things that have no right, no place. They are not essential to the gospel. They're not essential to the mission. They're not essential to theology. They're not essential to fellowship or to worship. They're not essential to preaching, but yet we make them so high up that we create division and dissension. We create division in our families, in our workplaces, in our friendships, in our marriages, and in our church. We create division on things that are not significant. So I want you to see... What happens when we allow unessential things to divide us? Acts chapter 14, verse 1. In Iconium, they entered the Jewish synagogue as usual and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there a long time and spoke boldly for the Lord who testified to the message of his grace by enabling them to do signs and wonders. But the people of the city were divided, some siding with the Jews and others with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both the Jews or the Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat and stone them, they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian towns of Lystra and Derbe and to surrounding countryside. There they continued preaching the gospel. All right, this is the first place where you're going, okay, you're walking through this and you're like, man, this is awesome, right? 
Like the gospel is being preached. We see this throughout Acts, and you've seen this before. You've heard me say this. The gospel is preached. Many people follow uh, after the Lord, and, and we should sit back and be like, man, this is, this is huge. Like the gospel's moving forward. We're excited about this. This should amp us up when we read this. And who is causing dissension? The Jews. Like you, you look at that and you go, okay, the people of God against the people of God in a city that is not of God, they're just ripping each other apart. And you know, I, like this is one of the hardest things for a lead pastor to say because I think that, this, that church should be a place of healing, but I think oftentimes church is a place of hurt. Church should be a place of healing, but we create places of hurt and pain. We experience this dissension and division. It doesn't feel good, Right? And we look at this passage and we see the people of God tearing at one another. Like Paul was a, a, a Jew. He was trained by Jews. He found the Messiah who filled, fulfilled all that the Jews were hoping for and longed for. And he finds this Jesus and he starts preaching it. And who's coming against him? His brothers and sisters. The ones whom he worshipped with in the synagogue and in the temple. The one whom he studied with and loved and cared for and sent care for. Like literally sent money and provisions to take care of these people. And they're the ones that are attacking him. You think about Romans 9, 1 through 5 and that, that unceasing anguish, that longing for the people to come to faith that Paul had, that he wants his brothers and sisters to come into the kingdom of God. And you can see that love just coming through him from theology into ministry, from head to heart to hands. You can see it coming out in Paul. And then you get here and you go, man, for a guy that loved them so much, they hated him. Now look at this story. Verse 8, in Lystra, a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet, had never walked and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke after looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed. Paul said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. Now, church, that, that in itself, like that miracle right there, that moment, we should stand in awe and celebrate, right? Like that's awesome. It, uh, just a couple of verses later, it says that the, the signs and wonders testify to the grace of God. These miracles weren't something to make people believe. They were just testifying to what they should believe, that the grace of God has come through Jesus Christ himself, who died on a cross, was buried in the grave, and raised from the dead. And it's just testifying to that truth, right? So this miracle should show people, man, what God is doing is real. In verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer sacrifice. So now this is not necessarily the right response, okay? But to be fair, they don't exactly know how to follow after Jesus yet. So what do they do? In their culture, they're like, this is how we worship. We give bulls. All right, it's a little different than our culture. Uh, I've never seen someone bring a bull into this worship space and offer it at the altar, though that would be pretty interesting, Pastor Glenn. Um, never seen that done, but think about this significance, y'all. A bull and a wreath was their way of making money. It was their livelihood. It's what they had to give, and it was a significant amount to give. 
Now, what they were saying was, you guys are gods. Like Hermes and Zeus, uh, application to that was like, man, that would be something that the apostles would reject. But they don't know what they're saying. That's why Luke gives us this note. Lyconian language. Uh, Paul knows uh, Rome, uh, Greek. He knows Hebrew. He knows Aramaic. He's got well versed in, in, in a couple other languages. But Luke gives us a specific note to tell us, hey, they don't understand what's going on, but when these things are starting to be offered to them and worshiped to them, it's then that verse 14 happens, right? The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes uh, when they heard this and rushed into the crowd shouting, people, why are you doing these things? We are people ju also just like you, and we are proclaiming good news to you. Now watch this sermon. Okay, you wonder like, okay, they saw this miracle and their response was probably appropriate in their culture. They recognize this and they're like, man, these guys are gods. So Paul follows that up with a culturally minded, culturally applicable sermon. Check this out. He says... You turn away from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go on their way, although he did not leave himself without a witness. Since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling you with food and your hearts with joy, even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. These people are just worshiping. They're like, this miracle took place. And Paul's like, no, 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 don't worship me. Don't worship Barnabas. Worship God, the one God who is over all and created all things. Are y'all with me on this? Because I want you to see what happened here. The, I mean, in this moment, you guys, if you go preach the gospel message and something miraculous happens and, and, and look at Paul and Barnabas, how they humble themselves. And they're like, no, look at God. Don't look at us. Look at God. Don't look at us. Don't worship us. Everybody's like, well, we don't understand what to do. All we're going to do is just worship. It's like, okay, but worship one God. And who's lurking in the background, ready to eat them up, ready to chew them up, ready to kill these guys? Verse 19. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, thinking he was dead. And after the disciples gathered around him, he got up, went into the town, and the next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. Think about that. What just happened? Miracle takes place. The world, the nations come to Paul and Barnabas and are like, we're going to worship. And Paul's like, great, but don't worship us. Worship God. One God. Who's the only other group in this area that's monotheistic worshiping one God? The Jews. You would think in this moment, those Jews are like, man, they're preaching in the culture. They're engaging the culture. They're worshiping in the culture. They're turning the culture and the idol worshipers to the one God who is over all, even quoting and using Old Testament, but doing it in a, in a culturally sensitive way, a way that engages the culture and they can understand and know the truth of the gospel. Paul is preaching into the culture and off to the side, the Jews are like, no. And so what do they do? They stone him. They nearly kill Paul. Uh, it tells us that the disciples were standing around Paul, probably for some form of like a memorial service, seeing him dead there. And all of a sudden he pops up. And in typical Paul fashion, he doesn't leave and go to another town. He doesn't escape to some form of a hospital to get some healing. What does he do? He goes right back into the city, probably to encourage the disciples. The next day he leaves and goes to another area. And watch what Paul does. He's not done. He doesn't give up. He doesn't quit. 
it, even though his brothers and sisters are against him, he doesn't give up. Verse 21. After they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, it is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Hey, who knew, who knew that better than Paul, right? Like, hey, guys, I just want to tell you, I literally just got stoned to death. You're going to, you're going to be offended too. You're going to be persecuted too. People are going to turn against you. And in fact, not just people, your brothers and sisters, those who are part of the kingdom of God and have been for a long time declaring one God who is over all, like the people, the Jews who are not turning to Jesus as their Messiah are turning against them. And he's like, man, it's necessary. You're going to go through some hardships, but it might not just be the Gentiles. He continues, verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. After they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had completed. Y'all, do you see what Paul just did? He was sent out from Antioch to go preach the gospel. He preaches faithfully in many different cities. He makes disciples in those cities. Then he comes back through, establishes churches, puts elders in those churches to lead them, puts elder in the church to lead them, puts elder in the church to lead them, puts elder in the church to lead. When he gets back, now what has he done? He's evangelized, made disciples, and planted a church with leaders in it. How awesome is that? And the man was nearly killed multiple times while doing it. Even in the midst of his brothers and sisters persecuting and stoning him, Paul was faithful to what God had called him to do. You know, when I look at this passage, a lot of times I think, man, what, what could drive these, these Jews to the point where they would want to divide so much, where they would want to stone Paul? Look with me at verse 27 and on. After they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. He opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a considerable time with the disciples. So he gets there and he's like, let me tell you what God has done. Let me tell you the miracles. Let me tell you the many people that came to faith. Let me tell you the churches that were established, the elders that were put in place. Let me tell you all, all the awesome things that God did through the Holy Spirit's power in these moments. Let me tell you about everything that is awesome. You know what happens in chapter 15? They hear that awesome story. I think, man, the, you know, Paul's telling all these great things and, and telling about the story of God and telling about what God did. And their immediate response is, yeah, but are they Jewish enough? Right? Here's literally what happens. God performed these miracles. People came to faith. Disciples were made. Churches were planted. Elders were placed over those churches so they could lead themselves. And I don't have to go back. And is a fully functioning church. And all these great things happen. And the Jews look at them and go, uh, but did you circumcise them? Seriously. Look at Acts chapter 15. It's a council. It's like a debate. 
Like they start having this division. They're like, yeah, but did you circumcise? Should we circumcise them? Hey guys, we need to know. Do, you, do they need to obey the food laws? Do they need to be circumcised and they need to follow after all these festivals in order to be part of the kingdom of God? And Paul's like, did you hear what I just said? I went to the nations and the nations believe in Jesus and they're pursuing after Jesus, the one that said that, they, that he had come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill all that the law entailed and to go and make disciples in all the nations. Did you hear me? I just went and did it. You know what I'm talking about church but don't we do the same we've got to be careful here i've been part of churches i've been part of groups i've been part of organizations that do the exact same thing man look at what god is doing these are some amazing things look at how god is unifying look how god is raising up disciples look at all these things that are happening not just this church other churches other organizations other peoples and and missionaries out in the world all these amazing things are happening and they're like but did you see what else they were doing? But, but did you see where they were? Did you see what restaurant they went into? Did you see what the people were drinking around them? Did you see who they were with? Can you believe they were with them? Can you believe they were there? Can you believe they were, they, the people around them were drinking these things? Can you believe what they were doing? And it's like discipleship happening in the nations and you're worried about these unessential dissensions. Y'all with me, church? What's the most shocking word in this passage? What's caused so much dissension in churches? It's one word. Paul traveled through the cities, establishing churches, raising up disciples, and over them he placed elders. And all of a sudden, churches are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, we have elders because we're biblical. No, we don't have elders because that's divisive and that they, they reign over things and that's evil. And all of a sudden we start, what do we do, y'all? What just happened? A gospel proclamation, an amazing thing just got divided. Why? Because one word, because what are we good at? We're good at taking one thing and the devil's good at taking one thing and dividing things out based on one thing because he's really good at disrupting what God is doing by using people to have differences of opinion that become so essential and we place it above God. We place this dissension above critical missional things and we place it so high that it causes division in the church. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's one thing where we look at this, and I'm, I'm like, I'm right here with you guys. Like this, every time I preach, the word of God is for me, not just for you, right? So when we look at this, we're like, man, why in the world would the Jews require circumcision? Why in the world would the Jews expect them to obey their food laws? Why in the world would they expect all these different things? And I'm like, wait a minute, what am I expecting? What do I require? What do I want people to look like? Where do I want people to go? What do I want people to invest in? What do I want people to do with their life? What do I expect that's not biblical? And I start to look at these things and I'm like, man, I don't think this is missionally motivating. I don't think this is critical to the mission. I don't think this is critical to bringing God glory and enjoying his goodness forever. I think this is something that I've put up, a barrier, a wall, some ideal, something that I think is necessary to bring God glory. And I have no clue if I said this to you guys uh, already, if this was a previous service, because it happens. But look, if you tell me this, and I, I know I'm kidding with this, but if you tell me that your chair that you're sitting in right now 
is critical to the mission of God, bringing God glory and enjoying his goodness forever, then you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have your chair in here next week. And I hope that you sit right there in it because it is critical for your bringing God glory, right? But there ain't a chair in this room that is critical for bringing God glory. There's not a chair, a burgundy, nice, comfortable little seat. that You don't need that to bring God glory, amen? amen? We don't need a lot of things to bring God glory. My question to you is, what do we need to bring God glory? What do we need to do to bring the mission of God into existence? And those things, cling on to them and don't let them go. Those are the things we die for. Those are the things we live for. Those are the things we're passionate about and going for. Let all the other things fall away to the side and, and not become divisive and, and dissension in our life. Let them fall away. And so here's what I'm saying, man. In your churches and your families, and your friendships. Watch out. Because the Jews, the brothers and sisters, the ones that look like they're with you, are really good at creating division. So who are your brothers and sisters? How are you treating others? What division and dissension in your life do you have that you're bringing into your marriage, and into your friendships, to your coworkers, and to your church? It's preferences. It's strategies. It's not missionally motivated, and it's not missionally critical. But instead, we cling on to them, and we place them above God, and we say, man, if I don't have this, I can't bring God glory. So I have three gospel responses I want you to walk away with today. The first is this. I want you to identify anything in your life that is an unessential uh, dissension. Anything in your life that is dividing people around you separating friendships, struggling with coworkers or causing dissension in your church, identify anything in that category and ask yourself this. If I don't have this and if this is not in my life or in my church or in my relationships or in my marriage, can, can I still bring God glory? And if so, you got to stop clinging on to that. You got to stop letting those things divide your life. Second thing I want you to do, and I'm going to give you a way to do that. Second thing I want you to do is I want you to identify anything that's missionally motivated or missionally critical in your life that you need to cling on to. It's worth dying for. Identify those things that are missionally critical. And here's, here's a really clear practical application for you that I want you to do this week. I want you to do one thing that tears down, breaks down, gives away, puts to the side something that is divisive but is not essential. And maybe this is in your marriage. Maybe this is in a friendship or with a coworker. Maybe this is in your church. Identify something that is divisive but not essential to bringing God glory and do something to lay it down at the feet of Jesus. Maybe you need to talk to somebody this week. You may just say, man... Look, this has been between us, but it's not essential. I've been letting this divide us. I've been letting this cause uh, struggles in our relationship. I've been angry at you about something, and it's not mission critical. And then really practical, I want you to identify something that is mission critical and do something to further that. Man, you may say, like, in my marriage, man, there's something that, that I haven't been doing that is so critical to the health of our marriage and bring God glory through our marriage that I haven't been doing this week, I'm going to do it. 
Maybe identify something in the church that you've seen, and you're like, man, it's probably really healthy for this to be happening in the church, but I haven't been doing it, and I'm going to commit to do that. Whatever it is, laying down a divisive thing that is bringing dissension in the church or in your family, and picking up something that is missionally motivated and unifying around the gospel and bringing God to glory. So as the band comes, I want to leave you with... um, leave you with an illustration. Uh, this is a place that I love, so I'm not talking negative about the place. I enjoy going here. I enjoy working out here. Have for a long time since, until COVID hit. But uh, has, I, I really enjoy going to the YMCA. Uh, it was established in 1835. And since then, if you ever walk into our YMCA, the Y at the Hill, or I think it's called, uh, you walk in, you see computers to your right, you see uh, workout equipment that has technology on it. I'm telling you, like, this technology is pretty insane. Like, you can literally touch the machine, it tells you your heart rate. I'm pretty sure it'll tell you, like, when you were born and when you're going to die. It's like this crazy technology. You know what I'm talking about? It's like your body mass index is this. I'm like, how do you know? Can you see me? What is you doing? It's really weird. This technology is pretty insane, right? I mean, if you were in 1835, y'all put yourself back there in 1835. I don't actually know what was happening in 1835. Whatever was happening in 1835, imagine somebody telling you that you were going to get on a machine and it was going to tell you these figures. Even that there was, was there electricity? No, there wasn't even electricity back then, right? No, there wasn't. Imagine somebody telling you those things, right? You think the founder of uh, YMCA was thinking that in like 200 years they were, they were going to have all these things in there? They're going to have, have all this equipment in there that was going to be doing all these things? No. You know what they wanted? In 1835, the YMCA wanted this. They wanted a place where Christians could be spiritually and physically healthy. Today, the YMCA has removed all Christian affiliation. There's no Christian terms. They've taken that out as best as possible. There's no Christian influence. There's no Christian leadership. There's no groups or anything like that preaching. I'm not dogging on YMCA. What I'm showing you is an example of what's called missional drift. It's where your mission drifts to the point where it's not even existent anymore. This can happen in churches. This can happen with marriages. This can happen in friendships and in jobs. This can happen anywhere you are. Here's what I want to promise you. I want to promise you this, that our church is going to be missionally driven. Not strategies. Look, the guy in 1835 would have never imagined that when you walked in, all you'd see is computers laid out, this huge, massive pool, this awesome place that you can take your kids in a splash pad. And then over here, you have this crazy technology. They would have never imagined that. But what they wanted was for Christians to have healthy, spiritual, and physical lives. And it drifted. Church. Our mission is first. It's something we cling to, die for, live for. It's what we're passionate about. It's what Paul said when he said, I have an unceasing anguish that I might even be cut off from God if my brothers and sisters would just come into the faith. But instead, his brothers and sisters were stoning him and trying to kill him. And so I'm asking you this question this morning. What would you do? to reach the next generation? What would you do to reach the lost and disciple the found? How far would you go? What would you give up? What non-essential, what petty problem, what thing would you give up for the sake of the gospel and for the mission in your marriage and your friendships and in this church, what would you give up for the gospel? Paul was willing to give up everything. What would you give up? Today, 
whether this is at this altar, whether it's in your groups, or whether it's in your conversations on the drive home, I pray that you will reckon with your heart to lay down idols, to lay down divisions, to lay down strategies that are not essential to the mission of God. Would you lay them down at the foot of the cross and say, God, I've been clinging on to these things and they are not essential to the mission and the gospel that you have for me. Would you commit with me to lay down things that are divisive, that are not essential to the glory of God? What would you do to reach those who are lost? What would you do to disciple the found? Let's pray. Father, we, we believe your gospel message that your son Jesus Christ died on the cross, was raised from the dead so that we might have life too. I pray, God, that as Ephesians 2 and 3 tell us that the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down because of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. So, Father, if there's any division in this room, if there's any hostility in this room with friendships and marriages and coworkers or church members, I pray if there's any hostility in this room, God, that you would tear that down with your gospel, that we would lay down those divisions at the foot of the cross that we would take up your mission for our life to go and make disciples of all nations, to love each other and give grace and truth to one another, to build each other up, that we might do good in what you've called us to do, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry for the leaders, to do the work of the ministry for the church, to raise up elders in every town, making disciples and preaching the gospel wherever we are. Father, would you remove any dissension in our heart and build us towards unity? in our friendships and marriages and co-workers and church. Would you build us towards unity, Father? I ask God in these moments, in these quiet moments, that you would reveal to us things that are causing division that are not essential. God, would you help us to lay those down? We struggle so hard to even give up. Father, give us the strength to lay them down. And we'll trust you. Father, we love you in your son's name. Amen.
to bring unity in the nations, to shout it from the mountaintops that he is God. Amen. Amen. Y'all go out. We love you. Have a great week. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.